While living in Oakland, I came across a gentleman who quickly became a dear friend. His name was Gabe, an odd duck for sure, but most of my friends are, so we're just going to get on with the story. Gabe was a standout. Dude was brilliant. We could talk the nuances of Bay Area, rap crews, all of them, debate over the implications of specific events in modern history, delve into the chemistry of the perfect flourless chocolate cake, and so much more much of which was way over my head. I mean, Gabe was brilliant, and he was easily one of the hardest hustling guys I've ever met. He did all of this with one crappy BMX bike and a backpack filled with everything anyone could need to get whatever job done. I mean, in this backpack, he had baking wares, clipboards, flyers, and a flip phone. Yes, a flip phone. It was the late 2000s but Gabe swore by the merits of that Nokia flip. Everything that Gabe needed to survive was in that backpack. Between jobs, Gabe spent time mentoring youth who had rest starts, going to basketball games of old mentees, and volunteering for causes that meant a lot to him. He had decent money, had a rough upbringing, and regardless of my many offers to crash on my couch, use my kitchen, bedroom, bathroom, or whatever minor offers of support I could provide, Gabe graciously refused. Gabe didn't have a home. And the more I got to know Gabe, the more it became evident that this was a choice he was making. This experience really opened my eyes to the many faces and facets of homelessness. You know, it's not just vets or addicts or the down and out. You know, it's a lot more than that. A problem like homelessness is not the kind of problem with a single cause, and thus a single cure. It's one of the more challenging and heart-wrenching situations many urban communities are confronted with in a very visceral and at times vile way. So how do we go about solving this problem? New York City is spending $2.06 billion, with a B, on its Department of Homeless Services. There are 61,000 homeless people in the city, which equates to about $33,500 per homeless person. That's just a little short of the starting salary of a New York firefighter. Los Angeles recently doubled its homeless budget to $450 million, in other terms, that is 1% of the L.A. county budget, and that is meant to service a population of over $10 million, and that 1% is going to just 53,000 people. As Los Angeles threw more money at the homeless problem, its homeless population has only increased. San Francisco is going to be spending $279 million in the coming year, on 7,500 homeless people. Seattle's spending 63 million, up from 39 million four years ago. Well, the Puget Sound up in Washington is planning to spend 1.06 billion. Seattle's homeless population is up 44% in just two years. New York, LA, DC, Portland, 
Seattle, the Bay Area, yes, they're responsible for much of the national growth in homelessness, and activists are blaming the crisis on the soaring real estate prices. And while those are some of the most expensive cities in the country, they've had these levels of homelessness for some time now. These cities and many others are dedicating a disproportionate amount of resources to fighting homelessness while the problem is only getting worse. And it seems that billions are being poured into solving this problem, and they're going everywhere but to the homeless. They're going to programs, to needle exchanges, to pooper scoopers, to police, to street outreach teams, and the list goes on. While there are a lot of mysteries about homelessness, one thing is clear. It is on the rise. And this flies right in the face of the dramatic increase in money being spent by the private, public, and social sectors trying to solve this problem. So in this episode, I'm excited to sit down with Akash Kalia. He is a social innovator that has taken an awesome approach to solving his community's homeless crisis. Akash, thanks so much for joining me today. Of course. So uh, can you just take a minute before we jump into things and tell me uh, a bit about you and what you're doing here at The Palms? Okay. So I um, bought The Palms in 2012. At the time, it was a days in. Um, my parents had owned it for like 15 years before that. And so to go back a little bit more is when I was 12, I got shot in the eye with a paintball gun. And I had uh, cataract surgeries and a bunch of glaucoma surgeries. And from that, I actually had like a medical settlement from that from that tr- that experience. Yeah. And so... Um, in 2012, my parents it was after the market kind of crashed. They got overextended um, business-wise, and I was going to school in University of Oregon at the time. And my mom called me on a Tuesday and said, "Hey, Kosh, like we're about to lose everything. Uh, we need your help." And so I dropped out of all my classes on Wednesday, drove home on Thursday, looked at what they had, and said, "This is what I have. What can we save?" And so that's where I bought the palms. And at the time, it was a days in. Um, I rebranded it, went independent because it was a franchise, um, mm-hmm. did a bunch of work onto the property and ran it as an independent, um, started like cleaning it up because it was a really poor shape at the time and it wasn't, it was barely, not even, I was like at the time in the first two years, I was actually living here because it was like, it made more sense for me to be here rather than drive 15 minutes either way to go home and so yeah. I was like, might as well just sleep here and so I was working you know, like 12 to 14 hour days, seven days a week. Um, I used to, in the beginning, I used to worry, like if all of my uh, employees cashed their check at the same time, I wouldn't have enough money to, to sustain it. And so like slowly building the business back up, um, going, being really mindful in the market that I was going for. So I shifted kind of uh, where we were going and went directly for like construction companies and so selling blocks of room to contractors uh, okay. and because I was in Costco one day and I was like how does Costco make sense they sell a lot of stuff but they reduce their profit margin but because because it's cheaper but the way they make money is they sell more quantity and I said I have 104 units if I reduce my pricing but sell more units I'll make more money and yeah. so that's what I did is I was giving these contractors really, really good deals, and we did like free breakfast in the morning, and did a, and then we had a, a market that had like beer and wine and snacks, and so like they would go. We served breakfast at starting at 4:30 in the morning, that because they all wake up really early. Then they would come home after work. They would go to the store, get um, get you know, uh, 
beer or whatever and mm. then they that and that was like a really easy thing for them kind of um and so then slowly built the business back up over you know three years and then i was started making money like consistently so i was like paying my employees a living wage and but i was still working you know 12 to 14 hours a day yeah. and I was like, you know what, I'm in my early 20s, like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like, what can I do that, you know, will, can pay my mortgage, but have kind of a, a social impact. And so when I was in Oregon, my roommate um, is in the military, was in the military, he's in the National Guard. And since leaving Oregon, he did uh, a tour in Afghanistan and came back. And so seeing him, he was a different person than when he came back. And so like that um, was really impactful for me because him and I were like, brothers you know and so being in the affordable budget hotel market you know the there are people that you know this is now I realize there are people who took people who were homeless took them a month in order to get the 50 60 dollars for a night just so they could have a, a shower and sleep in a clean bed and so it took people that long to get that much money to to be able to get a hotel room and so yeah. I was like you know and in this side of town this this area of was a lot rougher back in the day and so just seeing kind of what was around us I was like you know what can I do that can have a social impact but I still need to pay a mortgage I'm not independently wealthy you know yeah. and so um, there's one hotel in San Francisco called the 250 Kearney Street Project where they converted a 135 unit hotel into permanent supportive housing uh, for veterans and so I went to San Francisco looked at that model and I was like you know what like I think I could do it a little bit different, well, maybe even a little bit better because we have, we're on 6.4 acres, we have a bunch of green area grass, and I was like, the first thing I thought of was like, you know what, we could build a community garden, we could have yeah. like all of these things because there's so much, there's so much you can get out of putting your hands in the dirt and growing something, and and so um, my attorney, who I developed a close relationship with because I inherited a lot of legal issues <laughs> in the years before, um, she would happen to be the attorney who looked at that lease in San Francisco because the city and the county of San Francisco leased that property directly from the owner. And so she was the owner's attorney as well. And so I talked and this to was just a total coincidence. No, 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 no. She, so because we developed that relationship, she kind of heard about this, like she was uh, looking at this lease and she was like, gosh, like this is kind of interesting. And she's like, would you ever be interested in that? I was like, the first thing I said was like, what do I do with all my employees? Cause like, that was like being here, you know, like running this place, this was my home. In my phone, it still says a cautious home when I type in the address for the palms. And um, it was like, you know, these, the people, my employees, I had 18 employees and it was like, these people were my family. Cause yeah. I spent more time with them than I did with my family. And they, just as hard as I worked, they worked harder, you know? And so um, something, right when she asked me like, hey, would this be something you're interested in? I was like, if I could, if I can make sure all my employees were okay, then yes, definitely. And so we timed the palms out to be, I placed every one of my employees before we closed down. So nobody lost a job and I just timed it out. And it was like, it was difficult financially for me, right? Because yeah. I had to close down before I had to, before the whole conversion. So, mm -hmm. but it was necessary, I think for the people that worked here and, um, so we just like learned, thought about this model, really developed this idea, and then we had a meeting here uh, where we had all the big local nonprofits in the room and said, hey, this is like from the private side, I'm pitching you as a nonprofit service provider, like what if we could do this? Like would, would you be interested in being the service provider for this model? And, um, and Jenny Lynn from Catholic Charities happened to like not put the the meeting in right in her calendar and came like half an hour late. She almost didn't come at all. And she was the only person 
crazy enough in the room to be like, yeah, I think we could do that. And then there was people who were like, yeah, you could do it, but it's going to take like 10 years. And I was like, no, like that's, this is, and this is me being slightly naive at the time. Yeah. Um, just being in the private sector. And I was like, no, how long can it take? Like, this is plug and play really. Like, cause I was going to donate, I donated all of the furniture because for me, you know, walking into a unit when you have nothing, it's better to have some something to start with rather than just like a bed in a corner, you know? Like, yeah. And then as people develop income and things like that, they can make it, kind of customize it to their own taste, but at least to have somewhere to start. And so we basically just said, hey, like this is this idea. Jenny Lynn, Catholic Charities was like, yeah, I think we can do it. I talked to the VA. The VA was, everybody at the time, there were these pots of money um, that were just sitting there year after year because they had allocated money for housing, but they had no housing that was yeah. there was no one willing to to house these people and so we were like you know this is this is that solution we're actually we're not spending millions and millions of dollars and years to develop new housing out of nothing we're actually able to increase the housing stock by converting something into housing and so that's kind of where this idea came from and at the time there were um there were six hotels in the country that had done this similar model, and we were the first in the nation to do civilians and vets under the same roof. Because I looked at our local um, homeless numbers, and mm -hmm. you know we do have a high percentage of veteran uh, homelessness, but we also have a really high percentage of unsheltered, chronically homeless. And that that the unsheltered, chronically homeless typically are the, and specifically locally, are the highest. Uh, they use the most services, the most money in services, and they're those people who are most likely to die on the streets. So we went in and we basically prioritized, mm. we took the people who were the most vulnerable and housed them first. Because essentially like in a hospital, right? When, if you, if you come in, if you go to the hospital at midnight and you have a stubbed toe and you think you might've broken it, but I come in the hospital at 1 a.m. and I think I'm having a heart attack, who are they gonna serve first? Are they gonna serve you first just because you got there an hour before me? Or are they gonna serve me right. first because they think I'm, a, I'm more- um, At risk. At risk, exactly. And so our, the way our system of care was working before was that it was just purely on like a wait list. And it's like, no, you need to triage things. Like people who yeah. are most likely to die those are the people you need to be serving first. And so that's kind of the model that we took. Fascinating. And I really appreciate that you've taken the time in that uh, telling us the anecdote <laughs> to kind of parse out, because I think a lot of the times we talk about homelessness as like this monolith. Yeah. But I know there's so many nuances to mm -hmm. this population. Definitely. So um, something that you corrected me on before we jumped <laughs> on was I said shelter. When yeah. I reached out to you, you said no supportive housing. Yeah. What's the difference? So the, the main difference between, and I get this a lot, the main difference between a shelter and permanent supportive housing, which the Palms is, is that uh, shelters are temporary, right? Temporary, whether it's you have a, a, a specific sunset date that you can stay, you can only stay there for 12 months at a time or six months or 18 months. It says mm -hmm. it's transitional. Um, permanent supportive housing is permanent so we there's no sunset date someone we let people organically transition out and part of the reason they're on a federal level uh are realizing that transitional housing isn't actually solving homelessness so at uh, oftentimes it's actually just prolonging someone's homeless homelessness because even when somebody's in transitional housing they're not considered housed because after that 18 uh. months, they're back on the street. And what's really unfortunate is sometimes the criteria that people have to hit to get into um, 
into housing, if you are in transitional housing, you no longer are considered chronically homeless because you were housed for, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's essentially kind of like this, this cycle that's get that gets created and, and what really solves that on a most basic level, the thing that solves homelessness is housing and that's it. And so it's really, you know, really simplified, but it's, it's easy to put somebody into housing to house Mm -hmm. someone. It's really hard to, to maintain that housing. That's where the case management, all that kind of stuff comes in. So Mm -hmm. with permanent supportive housing, it's housing with case management, supportive services attached to it. Gotcha. And so what's kind of the average time that uh, one of your, I know, do we call them clients, residents, residents uh, stay here at the Palms Inn? Yeah, so in the first uh, two years, we um, we had 68 people organically transition out. And out of that 68 people, the average length of stay was 362 days. So just <laughs> about under a year. Interesting. Yeah. And we have um, a we have a 93% re- uh, retention rate, which is really high, which is basically like, and I was talking to a, a gentleman who kind of oversees the VA for uh, Northern California, and kind of, we were kind of comparing numbers because I'm really big on data. Mm-hmm. And um, they said the average... Uh, in permanent supportive housing, what they want to see in successful outcomes is around like 90%, but we're a little bit higher than that, fortunately, which is really, yeah. really great to see. That's awesome. Now, earlier you mentioned 104 units. Yes. Are all those units filled? Yes. And when I pulled up today, the parking lot's packed. There's a lot of activity, yeah. some service providers here, mm-hmm. and I also saw some uh, campers. Mm-hmm. Do, do you allow for people to park their campers here? and? So the people that have those those fifth wheels or stuff, they're, they're people yeah. who live here. Oh, yeah. okay. So that's just okay. their vehicles. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Um, so yeah, I know you're housing a, an impressive number of people here, mm-hmm. and there's a lot more out on the streets here yes. in our community and beyond. So how can communities, Santa Rosa, and others help scale models like yours? I think what really is the something that's really important for me is having this if we just as a system just purely rely on philanthropy it's really hard to get anything done but if we can essentially open up your market to mom and pop people business owners like me who need to who need to pay a mortgage but want to provide a social good mm-hmm. we've just increased the ability to get things done tenfold and so really understanding that this like what a true public private partnership is i think can really be beneficial for for cities um, similar models like this, whether what I call it now is like innovative housing solutions. So whether yeah. it's converting hotels or converting office buildings into housing, things like that is you know something that we all oftentimes are saying, oh, we need the housing now. There are things that we can do to make that to make that happen, but it's just you know, are we willing to do it? That's the real question. Yeah. And so, what were some of the challenges working with the city to? To repermit or yeah. recategorize what this facility was. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. Fortunately, we have locally we have a lot of political will around yeah. uh, homelessness and housing for homelessness. Um, so the the Palms is in this beautiful little thing called the city sphere of influence. So I'm in the county, but I'm also in the city of Santa Rosa sphere of influence. So essentially, at some point in the next in the 
future this this might be annexed into the city similarly like Roseland mm-hmm. and so I essentially had to go through the county's permitting process simultaneously with the city's permitting process to make sure that yeah it was a very interesting experience um, but because we had that political support and because it was this this innovative solution that was incredibly needed yeah. we had a lot of support around it and so Although we were able to fast track a lot of things and and just streamline processes because essentially what we would do is whenever there was any issue, whether it was the city or the county, we had a a meeting where everybody came to the table and said, this is what we need. This is the issue. How do we tackle it? And then everybody kind of just fell into place that, oh, I know this person that can do this. I can know this person that can do that. Let's let's get it done. And so that was we were able to get the palms opened even through the permitting process, like much faster than normal because of the need. Yeah. Yeah. And so two years in, is this a profitable enterprise? Yeah, so what yeah. my, because now I've created this essentially consulting company to help replicate this model because I really think that this is a huge thing that we can do to, to end homelessness. Mm-hmm. And um, what I say is the, the real value is in the opportunity cost. So if it was just purely about money, you know, I could I could run a hotel and make more money, but then I'm working 12 to 14 hour days, seven days a week. If I can do, if we, if a hotel owner can do something similar to this and not have to work there every single day and have that opportunity cost effect that that individual can now go buy another hotel or whatever, that's where the real value is. And so huh. that's the that's the real profit. It's it's easy for people to say like, oh, you know, you're grossing less than you were when you were a hotel, but yes, I, but I'm not working 80 hours a right. week. I'm just working right. 50, you know, like that's, yeah. And so, you know, kind of zooming out of Sonoma County, the yeah. poverty level across the U.S. has been at, like, stuck at 12% for about mm-hmm. 40 years. And there's been, you know, so much philanthropy, so many public uh, efforts to shift this, a lot of caring, smart mm-hmm. people d- dedicating their time and energy to it. But that number is stuck at 12. Why do you think this is? That's a difficult one. I think I think it's because communities oftentimes are somewhat nearsighted in similarly like with um, relating it back to the palms where people say, oh, you're putting all this money into subsidizing people's housing, right? So mm-hmm. the palms, it costs, it costs the community uh, $13,000 per person per year to house them. So that might seem like a lot of money, right? But if you look at it, the average chronically homeless individual in Sonoma County costs the system of care $96,000 per person per year. 96, in services. 000. Yes, whether it's uh, jail, uh, law enforcement interaction, hospitalization, all of these things. And so that's where people need to see. And similarly, like with First Five, they're realizing, you know, it's like upstream investments. Right. And, and I think that is kind of what correlates with the, the poverty rate as well. So how is it profitable if everyone is staying here for free? So that's that's a common misconception. So everybody pays 30% of their respective income towards their housing. So HUD basically determines a fair market rent for, for the housing, essentially like a price ceiling. And um, everybody pays 30% of their adjusted gross because affordable housing truly is supposed to be 30% of your adjusted gross. Often, oftentimes all over the country, and specifically in California and Santa Rosa, oftentimes people are paying much higher percentages of their of their income towards their housing. But so at the Palms, say someone comes off the street and they have zero income, 
for that time that they have zero income, their their portion of the rent is zero. And so as they are um, signed up for different services, whether it's disability or if they have uh, gained employment or things like that, as their income increases, their rent proportion their rent proportionally increases as well. So it essentially promotes it, it doesn't it promotes people to to gain uh, employment because mm-hmm. uh, the more money they make they make they they're still their rent is still proportionate to that amount. Okay. And so I did a study uh, because I see how much people how much their their percentage their rent portion is um, specifically for the veterans from June of 2016 to June of 2017 the average veterans income increased by 32% in that calendar year. So that shows you that when people come in they're um, with no income with all the services that are provided and all the support and whether it's you know treatment plans or uh, employment plans or budgeting plans they slowly develop that employment and income and then they transition out organically when they're ready. And you're able to have oversight over their income through a case manager? No, so self-documented? So, no, yeah. So every that the local housing authority, they're the ones who do a ver a ver income verification. Okay. And so I essentially the way it works is uh, the subsidized portion is get paid to me and then the tenant portion also gets paid to me. So that's how I see how much that tenant is contributing towards that rent. Gotcha. Exactly. Gotcha. Do you think that there's a shifting in this sector of uh, you know treating this problem towards I, a more upstream approach? I definitely think so, and I think on an even more macro level, that social entrepreneurship and you know like benefit corporations, I mm-hmm. think that is that is the future of business, and I, I really hope that is because with like me and my mindset is we as business owners can really use our business as a force for good yeah if we do that and if we you know as a benefit corporation you basically just say before uh in your articles of corporation before saying to maximize wealth for its shareholders you say i'm going to account for the environmental and social impacts of my business and before profits and that is truly what i think needs to happen to get some serious stuff done and is the palms now a b corp I'm in the process of becoming a B Corp. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm pending. Pending. Yeah. And, and what is that process like? I've heard a lot of people talk about that. But yeah. So on a state level, um, there are no tax incentives to be a B Corp. Um, on a state level, it's you basically just write in that sentence before in your articles of incorporation. Uh-huh. But then there's also um, essentially uh, like certification organizations like uh, Be Local, and they um, essentially certify you as a B Corp. So I'm going through that process to get certified as a B Corp. Gotcha. Exactly. There are quite a few companies in Sonoma County that are B Corps, like World Centric in Petaluma. They make compostable food service products. They're a B Corp, really amazing company. They donate 25% of their uh, net profits to organizations, and they do a lot of work all over the world. There's... um, Guayaki? Guayaki is a B Corp. Traditional Medicinal is a B Corp. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three Twins is a B Corp. Ice cream, yeah, it's pretty cool. Is there a connection between you and them, like some sort of mentorship or collaborations that you guys are able to do? Yeah, I've been through, I've been to some uh, some B Corp events, and it's just it's incredible just to hear that. And a lot of these companies are are really large, right? Yeah, and making incredible moves. Um, so I think there's a lot that I can learn from from them, and kind of just 
try to help my help them out while they help me out. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's built into the their ethos, I exactly. imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, you know, when we started chatting here, you kind of broke apart the nuances of the homeless population. Mm-hmm. But if we put them all back together. Um, when it comes to trying to solve this issue of homelessness, mm-hmm. what's the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room, and has been in the room for many, many, many years, is nimbyism. That is not in my backyard. Yeah. That whole concept that, you know, even even on a more macro level of like affordable housing development, there's this whole thing about people not wanting affordable housing developments in their neighborhood because they believe that it'll drive the profit, their property values down, right. or it will... Um, you know this whole concept of like oh traffic concerns and all of these things it's like no like we need to prioritize what we and that's what I was kind of talking about earlier like we can be nearsighted and say you know oh there might be traffic concerns but you don't realize in the long term picture it's going to cost our community even on a financial level to support all of it's cheaper for us to house people than it is for us to not house people that is that's basic Mm -hmm. yeah now, I asked that, and I was expecting you to say something about mental health. Oh, yeah. Mental health is also a huge, huge concern. Like, for here, and directly with the Palms, um, one of my long-term goals is to have a satellite clinic on-site mental health professional mm-hmm. um, because that concern, that there's such a need for, for mental health services. Yeah. And, yeah, it's definitely needed. Yeah. 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 So what's uh, one thing you think people should know about this population you're dealing with? I think people don't realize how easy it is to become homeless. And I think people don't, people often treat people who are experiencing homelessness as if they were invisible. And so on a, on a very you know, finite level, just looking someone in the eye and saying hello and acknowledging mm-hmm. someone's presence and smiling is incredibly important but then also realizing that you know these are people's mothers and fathers and daughters and sons you know like that's something that is very it's overlooked oftentimes and and people don't realize how easy it is to fall into the cycle whether it's from you know the vast majority of people experiencing homelessness have a traumatic brain injury uh a very high percentage of people experiencing homelessness have serious mental health issues and that's Mm -hmm. because our mental health system in america is not is nearly non-existent and these people the people who are oftentimes experiencing homelessness would are people who would have been in you know mental health institutions and they don't have that option anymore and so it's that's really that's really what it comes down to Hmm. when i was uh doing research on you know some some innovators in this space, you were really a shining light for me because of this public-private partnership. So I'm glad we were able to sit down. But you're in the space. You live and breathe this. I'm curious what other models or innovations in this or innovators in this space are exciting you? I think for what I really see, my personal future is not only is this um, kind of expanding this model and helping other communities replicate this similar model, but also in affordable housing development in general. And I think modular multifamily housing is the future of affordable housing. Not only from a financial perspective, it makes it much more realistic to actually build affordable housing by using modular construction, mm-hmm. but also from the environmental perspective. They're, they're in, the savings uh, for utilizing less waste 
with construction materials using modular construction is incredible. And, and I think we can create, we can build affordable climate, you know, like um, uh, environmentally efficient housing with modular construction. Is there a, uh, an example of a community somewhere in the States that's doing a beta run of this? or There are a few developers or uh, affordable housing developers in the Bay Area that are using modular construction. Mm-hmm. One of them is uh, Panoramic, I believe, and he has a, he actually piloted, I can't remember the gentleman's name right now, it's, might be Tim Kennedy, actually, I don't know, but um, he had a prototype of a micro apartment specifically for homelessness, for homeless in San Francisco and creating essentially like a modular micro uh, multifamily kind of structure to, into permanent supportive housing, similarly like the Palms. Yeah. So the Palms, their units are uh, 300 square feet each, and but these micro units are slightly smaller. They're like 220 or something like that, which is pretty small, but it, you just, you can do, you have to have a lot of them. Yeah. yeah. And where does uh, density play into this? I think density, and specifically when you're talking about uh, permanent supportive housing, so dealing mm-hmm. with really vulnerable populations, density is a very uh, fragile thing, I believe. It's because the only thing that makes the Palms sustainable is having really robust services on site. And so you're dealing with a lot of vulnerable people, and if you don't have those services that are really robust, then it can cre- it can be problematic. And so that's where the density, you have to play with it a little bit because you can't, I don't think you should have, you, you shouldn't have everybody experiencing homelessness in Sonoma County living in one place. That's right. basically what I'm saying. Yeah. And so, but I think there are economies of scale, whether it's in services or just in housing in general, by having a slightly more dense, uh, properties like the Palms. We have 104 units. We are, right now we have like 130 people living here. So there's a few couples basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, this is three acres? 6.4 acres. 6.4. Yeah, it okay. goes all the way back to the freeway. Okay. Yeah. So the long-term goal is to actually build more uh, housing on site. And so what I want to do is, what I've seen now in the last two years is that um, the jump from the Palms permanent supportive housing into just a, a regular apartment or a market or even affordable unit that leap is very large because a lot of people are coming in with zero income right and so um, what I want to essentially build is apartments on training wheels so something that's slightly larger has a full kitchen um, has like a little bit you know a little bit nicer space or bigger space um, where like a, the currently the palm side it's very intense case management right Mm -hmm. but so i want to build essentially apartment on training wheels where it's slightly less intensive case management and then it's an easier transition to a market rate unit for there so and and physically it'll give people who uh first come into the palms kind of a visual goal right on site and so that's kind of the the whole long-term the long-term goal i really think that that's something that's missing in the, when we keep talking about this housing crisis, like this laddering mm-hmm. up and exactly. through to exactly something that exactly works for us. And yeah. if we can build, if we can build more of these kind of apartments on training wheels, it then opens up those units that people are currently taking for the next person. And so having it be, that's why the, what I love about the Palms is the fact that it's organic. You know, you don't push people out; people leave when they are ready to leave, and that's why we have a higher success rate because of that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what do you think uh, 
people should know about you as a social innovator. That's a really difficult one too. Um, for me personally, I think, I don't know actually, I mean, why did you, why did you take this on? I mean, you, you told the story at the beginning and you made it sound like uh, it was convenience and you've obviously got a big heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's because of it's what can we what can we do to maximize our impact while we're here in this you know mm-hmm. on earth and 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 realizing that it's not purely just about how much money you can scurry away it's about how many lives that you can change in that process and i think it, and i think it can be both i think in an ideal world the more do you more good you do in the world the more money you should make like that that's just the way it should be yeah. right and not the other way around and so that's kind of yeah all right that's a good uh, transition to the next question which advice to other people who aspire to be social entrepreneurs or are in the midst of a project themselves I would say just work really hard that is that that I think is whether it's you know an innovative solution or a social solution is just work hard and if one person says no then don't let that stop you because just like that first meeting that I yeah. had with all the nonprofits there are more people in the room that said no than yes and that I don't you don't let that stop you because if you have and really if you think through your 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 ideas, you know, you shouldn't let no stop you. Final words, calls to action, plugs. I mean, a plug is the afford- the housing bond that is currently in the process in mm-hmm. the city of Santa Rosa, uh, measure M? M, M, I believe. M. Okay. I, I can double check. Um, because that specifically earmarks some of that money into permanent supportive housing, which is incredibly necessary. And really, we need to stop saying not in my backyard. We need to start looking at the community as a whole and what what is our role to play to make to to create a a better life for our entire community, not just for ourselves. Yeah. It's easy to lose sight that we are one connected entity. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Akash, thank you so much for all you're doing and taking the time to sit here with me today. Thank you. Learn more about Akash Kalia and his innovative approach to our homelessness challenge online and find him on LinkedIn. That's A-K-A-S-H, last name Kalia, K-A-L-I-A. His supportive housing model not a shelter, is dubbed the Palms Inn, and there is some great coverage of this story at PressDemocrat.com. I'm going to do something that's not too cool to do in the 21st century. I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a step back from all these interviews, because a common theme's emerging. i got to name it. So over the last two months, I've interviewed 11 social innovators working the highest of high-tech, global health, law, roofing, finance, diversity, equity, and inclusion, data security, and philanthropies, and direct service, and I think there's some other ones in there as well. And in every conversation, I have heard the word connection. Connection was central to the innovation that all these different innovators are creating. The Pillar Project is connecting users and their data, 
Dr. Kahana straight up said that connection is the cure to the immediate and existential challenges that healthcare presents. Peers from Radix is connecting innovators with better tools. Dolores Estrada and the California Endowment are connecting youth and community stakeholders to civic processes in profound ways. Letitia Hankey of ARS Roofing is connecting the gap between the skilled labor shortage and those who need good paying jobs. And Akash was able to make the Palms Inn such a success by connecting the private and public sectors together around a shared effort. Connection, connection, connection. As I sit here, we pass another week of increasing polarization. And I believe that connection is our path out of this current phase of our immature democracy. We can't write off the other half of the country, the other half of the state, the other half of the process, the other department, the others. The only way out is through connection. Connecting to those on this imaginary other side and finding common ground. The Pareto Principle states that roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. So flipped on its head and applied to our current lack of connection, I understand this to mean that we, all of us, agree on 80% of things. And then we spend 80% of our time focused on the 20% of things we disagree on. I guess that's human nature for you. And within human nature, there's a lot of hope, because Pareto tells us that we have a lot of common ground to connect over and build upon. It's also human nature that has stepped up to the challenges to solve seemingly Sisyphean efforts time and time again. Doomsday sayers have been doomsday saying since before the dawn of time, and Chicken Little has been crying about the sky falling for eons, and it still hasn't hit the floor. The stories that we've explored on this season of Onward give me hope. These stories are filled with the ingredients of what makes humanity great, and there are so many more to tell. So now I put the questions to you. Whose story do you want to hear? What societal challenges do you want to hear being solved? Let me know. Go to dweinzveg.com forward slash onward and drop a line in the suggestions and feedback section there. Really appreciate you tuning in and to feed and connect with the good wolf within you and our society. And I'll be back next season with some more great guests, a new format, and more cutting-edge social innovations and innovators. Until next time, onward and upward. For the last time this season, I would like to thank, from the bottom of my heart, my first and only sponsor, Jay Lately. Jay Lately is a hip-hop artist out of Oakland, California. He's been a long-time supporter of all sorts of great community causes. You can listen to his positive lyrics and his great tunes at soundcloud.com forward slash just lately. And if you're interested in sponsoring next season, please let me know. Drop me a line at dweinzveg at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to Onward at soundcloud.com, iTunes, or Anchor FM. And like that, season one is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in.